0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by Ronan O'Dalig, the Founder and CEO of Thriftify, Ronan, you're very welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, man, for having me on. Happy to be yeah, here.
1: Yeah, delighted to have you on. Typical fashion with the podcast is we, we go back to chapter one and work away from there. What I mean by that is we go back to the very early influences and work our way through challenges, pivotal moments, and, and see where we end up, keep it more conversational. So, if we bring you right back to the start, I believe you grew up in Clondauland, that's Dublin for any of our international listeners. Have you got any favorite uh, memories? Throughout your early years or as a young Ronan?
0: Yeah, good question. I think, like, I grew up in a cul de sac and um, a housing estate, and it was just during the summer, it was like 13 hours of being out on the road playing with gangs of people and different people coming and bumping into us on the street, different gangs from different estates, and just the just constant socializing i think has to be and football endless amounts of football on her own, yeah. uh were probably the, the best memories and i think it's an interesting one because you actually you learn social skills now there's arguments and there's romances and there's everything so it's a, it was definitely a kind of a good socializing period yeah
1: you mentioned football have you got a team of choice
0: not really, I'm more into Gaelic football so I'm obviously a big Dubs fan and I play for an Irish language GEA club that a few of us had to set up in college actually that's another kind of passion of mine but no, I've always been into sports Yeah.
1: Nice, uh, do you think that Dublin will do it again this year?
0: <laughs> like the draw, the draw with Kerry there recently was it was great I don't think anyone wants to see major dominance of one team but I think I think Dublin are having a chance I think that obviously we're having a chance but I think the I think it was I find it really interesting like looking at sports and business performance and all of that kind of stuff because it's none of the other teams sign up to the agreement that Dublin should be taken down a notch or Dublin should be split in two or we should make it harder for Dublin Mm. not a single other athlete in any of the other teams who's ever come out and said that and the reason is because they want to beat the best so yeah. I think it's quite interesting to look at dominance in sport and how people react to that and it's the people who are actually ambitious who want to rise to that level and not the detractors so yeah I'm a big Dubs fan yeah I would always yeah can't imagine Dubs never being split into.
1: No, hopefully they're not It would be a shame if they were I'm actually a Kilkenny fan Both my parents and all my family are from Kilkenny We wouldn't tell from my accent I'm based up in uh, Ritoke On the border of Dublin and Meath, But I can tell you firsthand Having Kilkenny dominated for so many years That you will not enjoy it when If a time comes that Dublin aren't dominating And you'll wish for those times to come back So <laughs> uh, you'll probably hope that they continue to dominate Because now Kilkenny not winning every single year Maybe we'll make for good when they do win again, if they win again, but it was certainly good those years where they won all the time. Talk to me still about your childhood years. Who do you think had the biggest impact on you when you were growing up or inspired you the most?
0: Yeah, good question. I've had lots of of influences in childhood, whether that be family. My dad, he had his own company as well and struggled with it through the recession. I think a lot of my friends were very influential on me as well. But I think actually, for a lot of my childhood, I was just very curious and a little bit introverted. And I wasn't necessarily looking at a major celeb or or anyone super influential or inspirational. I was just trying to figure stuff out, and I was always incredibly curious. And actually, the stuff that gave me the people who I resonated with most with were people who could answer questions for me, like smart people who knew stuff. Whether I had that was a I had a few teachers who were really good and. I remember at some stage, I'd like stay after school just to, especially with my science teacher, when I was early teenage years, I was just to ask her so many questions. Like, how does this work? And how does that work? And just curious, just really curious. And I think that maybe I've lost a little bit of that curiosity recently. We're just so busy, but it's something you need to stoke. And luckily then I had opportunities as a kid and as an adolescent to, to stoke those that curiosity.
1: Yeah, do you think that you're a father who also started a business potentially had an influence or impact on you starting your business
0: I think so yeah I think a lot of the research suggests that people who have parents who own businesses are much more likely to set up businesses mm. and I wonder is it that we just mirror our parents and then do what they do but I think for me actually like I wanted my initial plan wasn't to set up a business at all it was to go and work in a major corporate i thought i wanted to be a kind of a corporate executive mm. and i did that i did that for a while i did the for did didn't no, didn't become a corporate executive but worked in a corporate in unilever for a year and it was really soul destroying like i just realized this if i want to enjoy life I, I can't spend my time here it's just not for me and i need to do something that enables me to follow my interests and my passions and this is not it. It was helpful and my dad was there to give advice and all the rest, but actually he was quite frank and honest about the challenges of it. He was saying, look, if you're going to do this, it's going to be incredibly difficult and it's going to be a hard way of life. And you just need to be aware of that fact. It's not the very glossy, sexy thing that mm-hmm. sometimes it can be made out to be for young people.
1: That's for sure. Looking back on your time at Unilever, I don't know how long you spent there, but this could potentially be a two-part question are you thankful now that you've done it so you can say that you take that box or potentially scratch the potential future itch of ever on being curious as to what corporate world is and then do the second part of that question would be do you think that others who potentially want to go and start a business should spend some time working in a corporate world to understand what that's like because sometimes owning a business is not for everyone
0: yeah yeah no I'm definitely thankful I did it I may not have enjoyed every day of it but it was a a huge learning experience and I met some really great people and it did absolutely make it clear to me that I I need I wanted a different path I, I do think it's I, I think, you know, what I say to people generally who are asking me, especially young people and they consider considering entrepreneurship is really deeply considerate and only do it if you think you're genuinely 100% passionate about what, what you're doing. Don't do it because you see people on Instagram doing it or don't do it because your university have decided to make it something very sexy that they want you to do, which a lot of universities are doing. So the the research again suggests that the most successful entrepreneurs are older people who have spent a huge amount of time in a specific industry and they understand that industry? They've identified a problem. They have all the networks, they have all the social capital. Maybe they've built up a, a large chunk of savings and then they go and set up the company. Statistically, those people are a lot more successful in entrepreneurship than anybody else, any other demographic. So, what that would suggest is if you do, if the reason they're successful is because, well, there's lots of it's multifaceted, but they have gotten the experience in the market they already know the customers and they already know the challenges and the problems and they can easily go and pick up the phone to someone they know uh, and sell them their new business that's what the research would suggest but I do think that there is an element of you only get one chance you only get you only get one shot in life I'm not a I'm not very religious I don't think there's an afterlife Uh, I think this is it so if you're that way inclined I think you should definitely take a risk on something as well I think it's about that balance of yeah, if you're super passionate about it and you think you want to do it, go for it. But if you feel like you're only doing it for maybe the glossy reasons or because I'm 100% sure, go and get some experience elsewhere first and then come back to it maybe. But then at the other, the other hand, the other side of this, that coin is I'm a, a bit of a risk taker and always have been. And I think you have to be, you only get one chance at this. You only get one shot and why not try something completely different and scary and exciting and, and push yourself outside your comfort zone.
1: We've certainly got the same beliefs. A couple of things I know about you from doing some research is that you've already mentioned that you play GAE. You've been to places like Berlin, Greece, America, Washington in America. You're a drone owner, or at least I believe you are also a dog owner. What's one thing you're into or curious about that? Not a lot of people would know about you.
0: Oh, good question. Um, yeah, there's, there's probably too much to be honest. I think this is just I, I would love to spend more time flying my drone and doing videography. Yeah, I'm I'm mad into videography, even though I'm really bad at it. I would love to spend more time making videos and uh, inspiring people through video. I think it's a really great yeah. video and art form, and it's something I'm really interested in. And I have been trying to find more time to do stuff like that, just out of pure interest. And I think it's I think it's important actually. There probably was a time when I was telling myself everything you needs to be everything you do needs to, the, the business and you can't do anything else. There's no time for hobbies and you need to spend ten hours, twelve hours a day working on your company, which is complete rubbish. I don't know where that myth came from, but whoever bloody invented it needs to check themselves because it's totally unhealthy and you end up just not making good decisions. You end up just burnt out. You end up making crap decisions for your company. You end up not enjoying it. And then you end up not making the progress that you'd make if you spend less time on it. So that's one of the big realizations I've had over the last kind of year and a half, especially with the pandemic and the lockdown, is that actually, if you're not, if I'm not looking after myself and I'm not doing things that are good for my own well-being, then it, everybody suffered and mm. we have a team we have a team now 25 people and what kind of leadership is it for me to go in and and be completely burnt out and not enjoying the journey like that's not the culture we need or we want so I think it's in one of the things that I've started to realize is it is really important that not only I do it for myself the things I'm interested in but actually that we set the standard as a company in terms of what our culture is and that if people People everybody should be enjoying this. There should be obviously there's going to be periods of high pressure and all the rest, but if eighty percent of the time isn't good crack and enjoyable and people aren't fulfilled in their work, then we failed at our job to create a good culture.
1: I love it. I love it. You spent six years in the reserve defense forces. Any lessons learned from that or how did you how did that come about in the first place?
0: Yeah, yeah. The the reserve defence forces are like the, the kind of part time the part time military uh, in Ireland, and mm-hmm. uh, you do it on a voluntary basis. So you go one evening a week, and then a couple of camps during the year. And it came about because they they paid a visit to our school actually, uh, nice. and they were kind of recruit recruiting people for it. And myself and a friend said we'd give it a try. Yeah, six years later, we he's he, he ended up he actually ended up getting a job. He went into the permanent defence force, became worked in commun- the communications wing of the defense forces and has made a really good career from, for himself in it security which obviously is a big topic at the moment with all the ransomware stuff but um, mm-hmm. that's how it came about and it, it was it was a really great journey yeah it was you, you really learn a lot the first thing the biggest thing i learned is you, you learn to really love cleaning <laughs> because yeah because you have to you're forced to clean stuff in a way as a 17 year old you've never thought could be that clean So like we'd be on a camp somewhere in a barracks and you'd be given the job of you and two other 17, 18 year olds go and clean these, those toilets, you know, after a week of a thousand people being in the barracks. So you go and clean them and then you'd be brought back and they'd be inspected and they'd say, no, it's not good enough. Do it again and do it again and do it again and get in your hands and knees and do it until it's properly done. Don't be doing this half hours. There's no, there's nothing, there's nothing done in halves. Everything is Mm -hmm. done perfectly. And everything has to be done perfectly because people's lives are on the line hypothetically in those situations. And there's, there's military equipment and there's live ammunition and there's, it's incredibly, it's a serious thing. Like it's not, a, it's not a part-time hobby. You know, if you're doing it, you're doing it 100% and everything is done 100%, not just that kind of cleaning. But I think that's the, it's a good example of it because it showed me that, Jesus, actually things can be done incredibly well you don't need to you don't need to just do the job if you want to you can actually do above and beyond and you can actually and you can enjoy it so we learned over time to be proud of that work and to say yeah I'll clean the toilets and you know what they're going to be the cleanest they've ever been and when I walk away from them I'm going to be incredibly proud that I did a good job and I think that you can apply that to anything and no matter what your job is and I think That was something that took, I didn't learn that when I was 17, but it took me a while to appreciate cleaning the toilets. But I think there was lots of other areas like that where we we learned to do things properly and we learned to do things well and appreciate what we've done. And that was huge, I think, for for any young person to have that kind of appreciation for hard work and respect for hard work was absolutely transformative, I think, for me. There's
1: a good lesson in that. Mm. UNESCO, what was it like? representing yourself at the UNESCO Youth Forum. Again, what brought you there? And what messages do you want people to hear? And Do you think there's anything that still needs to be done?
0: Yeah, you have definitely really done your research. <laughs> so, like, I... Yeah, I was quite active in student politics um, in university and was selected for a couple of different things. And one of them was to represent Ireland at the, the UNESCO... One of the UNESCO World Forums. And it was a very interesting forum and conversations So it's basically young people from all over the world trying to guide the the UN's youth strategy and yeah it was really fascinating I think there was a lot that came out of it but perhaps the biggest thing was conversations with young people so at these conferences there would be loads of different young people from around the world the late the, the old the oldest they'd be would be maybe 22 23 And you'd be having conversations about very serious topics and writing and debating and coming up with papers or suggestions for for major global issues. And and the thing that stood out to me was the gulf in how the older representatives, so the actual genuine diplomats and representatives of the countries at the conference, how far away they were from what young people thought. Like, just a, a massive gulf in how we felt... The world should function or in how we felt things should be addressed and what they were willing or ready to to sign off That's scary yeah it was really big major and I think that was if one of the, that was a part that was a, at a time in my life when I was starting to dabble in entrepreneurship and starting to kind of put one foot on the real world a little bit and I think it was quite helpful because you realize that maybe the roast into the glasses you have on about how easy it is to get stuff done or how easy it is for people to change the world you need to really take those rose tinted glasses off and actually see things as they are for a while and that was definitely something I took away from that was that oh if you want to get stuff done and on a big scale and it can be actually incredibly difficult and it is a huge challenge but no it was it was a great experience and it was a great opportunity to meet other people who were incredibly passionate about what they were doing and that's the other thing I think that's super important is you don't realise how insular Ireland is until you travel outside of Ireland. And I think it's something that holds us back a little bit because if you're on if you're in mainland mainland Europe, it's just so much more dynamic and the spectrum of acceptable debate is a lot wider. So in Ireland we've had two political parties in control who are very close in terms of their centre-right or, or populist policy. Whereas in Europe they've had Parties who range from the far left to the right, sometimes the far right, in power and in government. And and what's happened is, I feel in Ireland, our our, our spectrum of debate is is between those two dominant political parties. You can be a little bit, maybe a little bit centre left, or you can be right. But anything outside of that is non-acceptable, is not up for debate. Whereas in other European countries, it would be up for debate. Of course, it's up for debate. Sure, we had someone in power and they had, they achieved that policy and we socialised housing and sure, look at the results, it was great. Or we democratised energy mm-hmm. or we did this thing and it worked. Sure, Why wouldn't we debate those things? So I do think at times that the, the kind of insular nature of the Irish discourse can hold us back a little bit. And I think I really saw that as a young person when I travelled and t- spoke to other people from other countries. And saw how radical they were, or just how different they were, or how, in many different ways, they had a completely different outlook on the world. And and I never met anyone like them. So I think that was a huge learning as well that I, that I got from all that international travel I did as a young person. And as and has still is still something I hold quite close to me when I'm talking to Irish people. I'll be talking to people who maybe haven't, haven't had that opportunity or who, who maybe are still quite insular in, in what they're willing to talk about. And I think you have to be cognizant of that mm-hmm. when you're trying to um, progress things about where people's perspectives lie and why they think the way they think.
1: In your industry or role industry that you work in a role as a founder, is there a, a commonly held belief that you passionately disagree with?
0: <laughs> oh, wow, great question. I, I think the... I think there's a, there's, there's a belief that maybe hasn't been realized yet. What we do is we help charity shops to sell used clothes online. And that as a statement, the vast majority of people who hear that think, oh, that's nice or oh, that, that's a nice niche. Mm-hmm. But then when I explain that, actually the demand for used clothing is growing 21 times faster than any other fashion segment. And the fast fashion industry accounts for 10% of all global emissions. And the customers we're dealing with receive 70% of all used garments. And that number in Ireland is two three 300 million garments a year going into these organizations. The picture starts to become a lot clearer. And that picture for us is, there's an opportunity to completely change the fashion industry from head to toe, to change how the majority of people engage in fashion, from buying used, unsustainable fashion to buying circular fashion that supports the best organisations that exist in our society, nice. right?
1: And that yeah. rings well. That does.
0: And the thing is, that ambition as a st- as a sentiment and as a statement is enormous. And actually, sometimes our customers are there have them are the most limited in their beliefs to achieve that. And there's a lot of times where we will try and bring people on that journey. And I would have conversations with it, with organizations that we have who will be receiving tens of millions of garments a year. And I try and explain to them that if you get 1% of your items online, this is the potential revenue that you're going to have to do more of your good good work. And it's just very hard for them to make the leap between where they are now and what the possibility is, what the future might look like. It's it can be very hard for people to step outside of the day-to-day thing that they've mm. done for decades and get on board with a vision that looks very different to what they do right now. But yeah. I think that, I think it's inevitable that they will. And I, and I think it's not a question, question of if, I think it's a question of when and it's a question of who. And what we're trying to do is, is perhaps be one of the organizations that helps achieve that uh, and, and, and presents them with that vision
1: and brings them around to it. Riftify is still a relatively young business. How do you get the word out about a new business? What, what do you believe is crucial?
0: Yeah, uh, persistence. Uh, it's not even necessarily the how, it's just they don't bloody stop and just talk to everybody and do every little tactic you can. I think for us, we set ourselves in hindsight, probably too big of a challenge, but we've committed to it now and that was to be double-sided. So we sell products uh, on our own channel, direct to the consumer, but our technology is actually powering channel. So when a charity shop uploads a dress for sale on Triftify, that item is actually gone for sale on eBay, on Facebook, on Google shop and on dozens of other marketplaces. We're reaching the customer through leveraging other channels, which is the first thing, which I think can be very powerful. If you can find leverage, absolutely use it to the max. But the second thing then for us is as we're going direct to consumer, we've just had to do everything. And, we made a very conscious decision as a team. We sat down and said, right, guys, are we going to do a direct-to-consumer channel as well or are we just going to do the the omni-channel solution? And to be honest, we weren't excited about doing just omni-channel. What excited us was building a brand. What excited us was building something that people would talk about, that would spread, that people could engage with, that could have an impact on how people think about fashion. And that was why we decided to do direct-to-consumer because we felt if we're going to love this and if we're going to get really passionate about this, we want to build something that, that people can talk about. And that's kept us incredibly passionate, but it's meant that we've had to do a huge amount of work to try and build that brand. And that means... Social media consistently, it means PR, it means networking, it means interviews, it means SEO, it means Google Ads, it means the full remit of digital marketing. Even traditional print media, press releases to local, lo- local papers. Anytime something big happens, I'll send the press release into our local Echo, where we're from, because it's local kid does well kind of stuff. Um, and we leverage that as much as possible so you just have to do all of that work and you'd have to just keep doing it consistently and it's a pain in the ass like it's it's a lot of work but if you want to build a brand you have to do it and you have to do it all well now there's a lot more we could be doing we could be doing the stuff we're doing even better but we got it we just have to do that work so that's on the consumer side and then just to finish the point on the other side of the platform because obviously Mm. there's no point bringing consumers to the website if there's no stock for sale so we have to get the stock for sale from charity retailers and actually that's a lot easier for us because we know who they all are there's in the UK and Ireland there's kind of 600 of them who we want and we know who they are and it's it's just about trying to get a meeting with them so that's a lot easier it's a direct to customer uh, play where you're getting an introduction or you're Sending a cold email, obviously we much prefer an introduction from an existing client, but it's a much easier thing than trying to build a brand.
1: You had 260,000 visitors to your site in 2020. And since the third lockdown, you said the site's recorded a 79% increase in traffic to online sales with the biggest sellers being fashion then followed by books. What's the future look like for the rest of 2021 and beyond?
0: We're on a hyper-growth trajectory, and for this year, we have an ambition of saving a million kilograms of carbon, and that's a big ambition. Last year, we saved 40,000 kilograms of carbon by selling used Fashion, and this year, we want to save a million. So that'll show you the kind of growth trajectory that we're on, and to achieve that... There's two things that we're focusing on. The first is new market acquisition. So we're working with over 90%, over 95% of the retailers in Ireland. And, and now we're trying to switch the technology on in the UK and get mass market adoption there. It's much harder. It's a much more sophisticated market. There's there's one or two existing competitors there. That's the big focus is to drive new, new acquisition for charity retailers in the UK. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is on the consumer side of things. So it's really spreading awareness of the brand uh, and building retention retention is where everything begins and ends for us it's so much better to retain a customer than to try and get a new one
1: that's for sure three final questions for you all restrictions are lifted and you can travel to any country in the world where are you going to go to (laughs) Ibiza I don't know if you you need to go there right now because the sun here is so hot today and yesterday but uh, yeah good choice Don't know who you live with or live with, but your house is burning down. Your loved ones are all safe, but your house is burning down and you can only save one item. What one item would that be? Is the puppy safe? Because
0: the puppy is definitely the the
1: puppy safe. (laughs) (laughs) If you (laughs) love the puppy, of course.
0: Probably just my notebook. Yeah, it's full of full of my stuff and ideas and is something mm-hmm. I rely on day to day if I'm not taking if I don't do a to-do list in the evening before for the next day I will, won't sleep well like I'd be stressed out so That's number yeah one.
1: I do similar I always write down my following days to-do list just before I get into bed every night uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely easier to tackle the next day because then you're just going through a to-do list the following day I'd like you to imagine that we're now having this conversation as in if it's the year 2030. So we're talking right now and it's the year 2030 and you're looking back on the previous decade. What You can answer this personally or professionally, but what would you like to be looking back on?
0: Well, I think if by 2030, we're not looking back and saying to our governments and to major corporations because we have decarbonized our economy. We have given the biggest effort we've ever seen in humanity to changing how society and our economy works for the sake of our climate. We've completely changed how our economies function and made them more sustainable and more human-centred. If we're not saying that, then we're going to be in a very difficult, we're going to be in a very tricky place because if we keep going the way we're going, the science projects that there won't be any of these kind of conversations happening. There won't be there won't be an economy, there won't be cities, there won't be food. That's the level of the seriousness that, that we're in. So I think that has to be the number one focus for all of us is to say the economic model we've built is bringing us towards catastrophe and we need to change it and we all need to play our, our part in that. So that would be the first thing. And I think as part of that, where I see us playing a role is, is in how people shop. And our top line mission is to change how and why people shop. So it's not just a how. It's not just the fact that you can now buy from used; you can now buy used goods ubiquitously in a way you never could before. But it's the why. Mm. It's because it's, it's also because you're voting with your wallet because you want to spend your money on products that actually have a good impact on the planet and on society. And if we can have a major impact in that space uh, and disrupt the fashion industry uh, and change it drastically from this extractive, damaging model into something that's circular beneficial then that would be absolutely amazing and yeah that would be an amazing place to be sitting from looking back.
1: For sure Ronan I've had a great pleasure getting to know you a little better over the last 35-40 minutes and I wish you nothing but the best going forward but thank you for being my guest today Thanks a million, have a good one Cheers, we'll cut it there thank you very much for that, I appreciate that and I actually enjoyed it a lot
0: Yeah, likewise, thanks a million It's great to have uh, different questions on the podcast yeah it was really good
1: yeah that's something I'm conscious of and I need to make a better effort of letting people know that in advance but uh, I'm, I'm glad you liked it and uh, as I said yeah I'll have it out in less than a week but uh, for now I'll, I'll let you go back to your day and uh, keep kicking ass thanks
0: a everybody. talk to you soon take care man see you later
1: cheers